Hi, everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. So tell us now, good lead in, tell us about your, your academics. Um, what, 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 what did you do as you kind of, after growing up and, and went to college and so on? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, just as an aside, though, my uh, co-author on this, Alison Wilson, she, um, she studied protozoan genetics in Seattle, actually. Uh, I can ask her later yeah. if she knows your, your friend. Steve Beverly. Yeah, yeah. Steve Beverly. Yeah, I caught that. So, well, you know, academically, uh, I went to a place called Bath University in England, uh, which is a, a cool school in the sense that we got to study. Uh, we basically got to leave the university for like six months at a time, go work for a company or an institute. And uh, that was an incredibly valuable asset when it can't, because, you know, most people, they, they go to, certainly then, and, and it's still often true, you go to, to university and you study your subject in a very academic way. But, you know, often you don't read papers. You don't really know how it is to be in a lab itself. You, you know, everything is kind of secondhand in a sense. And uh, we, so we had these three six-month placements. And these enabled us to, to sort of, you know, test ourselves out you know, in lab environments? Am I good at the practical stuff? Am I good at the social stuff? Am I good at the, the uh, you know, thinking on your feet kind of uh, stuff that, it, you know, none of which really uh, gets tested in college. So that was a huge asset to me, actually. So, so I, I liked that university a lot for that reason. Uh, and then I did a PhD. I did, actually did a master's before that in crop genetics. Then I did a PhD in virology. So, so that was in uh, Norwich, England, at a kind of famous institute uh, called the John Innes Center. And uh, so that was a really, that was a great place to work. Uh, and then I went to the UW and three years at the UW in the genetics department studying RNA biology, actually, which is kind of relevant to this virus, right? So you've got, yeah. you know, my virology background from plants and then my RNA background from from the UW these uh these you know DNA and RNA people think of them as pretty similar things but uh, if you if you know enough about them you realize how fundamentally different they are you know people often treat you here while just treating them as virtually interchangeable but that's totally not the case and so uh so so that that background is very useful uh, you know, in our work in general, because, you know, we do a lot of very generalist work. Like I published a paper a few months ago about modeling of the food system. So we have a very general background in, in biology, which, which turns out to be very useful. You know, because I had a crop genetics background and a virology background and a, and a genetics and RNA background, these things all kind of go together in science, which tends to be a bit siloed. 
but they turn out to be a huge advantage to to me in our work today. So so you know I really feel like I make use of that that varied background that that not so many people have. You have you've done you've done a really great job with that. A little bit of last little aside, and I think everybody else will appreciate this too. When you think of DNA, everybody, there's probably two names you think of, maybe more than others. If anybody gets, and you you can't do it, um, Jonathan, but if anybody gets one of those two names right, putting it in the the Q and A box, I'll give you a little prize of some kind. But what there are two names. I'm not going to say them right away, but. When I went to Scripps Institute of Oceanography for my PhD, we used to, every Friday, we would have a, a guest lecturer come in from off campus, and they were usually just amazing. Um, Nobel Prize winners, you know, just world experts in whatever area that they were in. And the audience, these grad students mainly, and some profs, but mostly the grad students, could be brutal on these people. I mean, asking them questions that were really difficult and or were really stupid in some cases. Well, I'll never forget one Friday when one of these two names, that I'm not going to say yet, was speaking and was talking about DNA and something that he had recently done, which led to a Nobel Prize. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? You know, John, don't say the name, Jonathan. Okay. Well, he finishes talking. By the way, this is a long, narrow lecture hall. It's really old. It's still there. I can't believe it. I mean, it was probably built in the 50s. I don't think you could probably have, probably seated six or seven people on one side, six or seven on the other. Really kind of steep, almost like a theater aisle in the middle. I don't know how it met fire laws, actually, and then a stage down at the bottom with the screen, and back in those days, they still used slides and slide projectors, but anyway, this guy finishes talking, going to give his name in a minute, and immediately, this one, this one grad student that I knew, kind of, wasn't a friend, sitting row three or four, stands up and goes, and here's the name, I'll say the name, Watson, <laughs> you're full of shit. <laughs> what? Yeah, you. Jerry did get one of the names, so Jerry, you're gonna, and, and it wasn't the other one. So it's Watson and Crick uh, of the DNA model. Well, Watson was the one speaking. But anyway, in, I, everybody kind of went, "Whoa!" Here's this long-haired dad student. You know, this is the mid 1970s, standing up and getting right sort of vocally in Watson's face right after he talked about his DNA work. And I thought, we are all kind of sitting there going, how is he going to handle this? Watson walks right from up front where he was and had the, guy, the kid had some kind of a bandana or whatever. Watson didn't have a hat on like what I do, but he got right in his face, right in front of him, and said, young man, <laughs> and he was saying it really loud, when you reach a point in your career where you've even had a tent of the success that I've had in mind, then you have the right to speak that way to me. But until you reach that point, you sit your butt down in that chair and show a little respect. And then he just walked back and then he, 
can answer the rest of the questions that people have. Um, because the guy was just being stupid. And, and that was not unusual for a lot of these grad students to script, uh, unbelievably. But Jerry, great answer. You got Francis Crick as, as the other person there. So we're going to stop at that point, turn this over to Jonathan to give his presentation. Please ask questions during it if you'd like, but we're going to wait till the end to let Jonathan answer them at that point. So all yours, Jonathan. I'm going to actually um, mute my webcam just so I'm not diverting people and let you go for it. Right. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you very much, Wayne and uh, the e-community for giving me this opportunity to share our latest research with you. And to everyone watching, thanks so much for tuning in and welcome to this presentation. So as you heard, my name is Jonathan Latham. I won't add any more about my background except to say that although I'm a plant virologist by training, my colleague, Alison Wilson, who is a geneticist, and I were initially very reluctant to get in any way involved with researching the coronavirus pandemic. The principal reason was that our nonprofit work is about the science of food and agriculture and its impacts on health and the environment. The food system is the principal driver of our global ecological crisis. Through its energy use, its pesticide use, the overriding of nutrient and carbon cycles, etc., the food system is the single most important social and ecological problem facing humanity. And by the way, the easiest to solve. Many more people, therefore, need to be paying attention to food and agriculture. Why would we want to get involved in the pandemic? And so for a long time, we resisted. But as people kept sending us papers on the research that had been underway at the Wuhan Institute of Virology prior to the pandemic, we also thought about the extent of the overlaps. Our typical work is often on genetic engineering of plants and animals, and there were obvious overlapping concerns about the possible genetic engineering of viruses. From a different perspective, that was the common disproportionate impact of the Bill Gates philanthropy. Two things are particularly disturbing about the methods and objectives of the Gates Foundation, but not unique to it. The first is that the solutions that the Gates Foundation and others seek, whether for agriculture or for public health, are uniformly technocratic. That is, they are reductionistic, technological and legalistic, i.e. They, they primarily operate through accumulating and concentrating intellectual property and other proprietary rights, and so their goals are neither human-centric nor nature-centric. In fact, they often explicitly bypass human improvement of a collective or individual nature. As Vandana Shiva says, they are against life. The second disturbing aspect is that their primary tactic is to control the narrative, sometimes through the control of science and the underlying data, and sometimes through influencing the media directly. The result is undemocratic and heedless of social and ecological requirements and limits, and so bound ultimately to fail. 
and the cost of that failure will fall most on the poorest. But ultimately, everyone pays the price, which is exactly what we have seen in this pandemic. The exact people their publicity claims to help end up as the major losers. Thus, there are complex but fascinating overlaps and repeating themes between cha changes occurring today in biomedicine and public health accelerated by the pandemic and those occurring in biotechnology, agriculture, and the food system. So in the last of these, of what will be three talks, I will summarize these issues and share our thinking on what we call the pandemic virus industrial complex, which is the title of the final talk. The talks come full circle in the sense that it is this complex that is primarily responsible for suppressing open debate on the origins question. No full or frank public discussion of the possibility of a lab origin is occurring, ultimately because we have allowed the pandemic virus industrial complex to become very powerful. It has too much to lose from a discussion. So one of the reasons to understand the origins is that it exposes the workings of this complex. Leaving all this aside, there is a simple reason for wanting to understand the origin. We need to know how the virus originated to avoid a repeat. It is therefore very disturbing to see prominent scientists misleading the public. Let me give you one example. John Mazet is the former head of the USAID's PREDICT program, which was a global zoonotic virus detection project with a $200 million budget. Mazet is professor of epidemiology at UC Davis and head of the UC Davis One Health Center. She also sits on the board of the nonprofit Global Virome Project, which is actively seeking billions more government dollars to globalize virus surveillance of wild animals. Mazet told NPR that research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which for the rest of these talks are called the WIV, did not involve live coronaviruses, but only bits of them. Therefore, it could not possibly have been the source of the outbreak. This statement was entirely false, as a glance at the coronavirus publications of the WIV would show. The WIV has a lead coronavirus researcher called Zengli Shi, who collects live coronaviruses and cultures them in her lab, in different first, her lab, sorry. In different versions of the origin story, Zheng Li Shi is portrayed as either the heroine who published the first COVID-19 virus sequence or the villain from whose lab the pandemic virus escaped. So my plan today is to give is to give the first of is to, so my plan, excuse me, beginning today is to give three talks, each of 40 or 45 minutes or so. Today's is titled Why Wuhan? It will be about the general context of the initial outbreak. I will describe and discuss the merits of the various zoonotic theories, which are, relatively speaking, natural origins, at least in comparison with lab escapes, and explain why a lab escape appears much more likely than any other explanation made so far. In the second talk, I will concentrate on explaining, concentrate on explaining a specific theory of the origin of the virus. It is called the Mojang minus passage theory. 
Its central proposition is that in Yunnan province in 2012, six minors were the victims of a novel coronavirus outbreak. We know that numerous medical samples were taken from these minors and some were sent to the WIV. The theory proposes that by virtue of its lengthy incubation in the minors, the virus in these samples had become a highly adapted human pathogen. Then an accident at the WIV led to the leaking of the virus. This theory does not propose that the escape virus itself was engineered but it does not preclude subsequent alteration of viruses extracted from the miners. So let me begin these talks by stating what we all probably know, which is that beyond much doubt, the pandemic <clears throat> originated in Wuhan. But not everyone knows that the city is also home to an institute that is the world's leading center for the collection of fat coronaviruses from the wild. This institute is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The WIV, for short, was and still is a site of extensive genetic manipulation of coronaviruses. That is to say, research that constitutes a substantial red flag to anyone somewhat knowledgeable about the history of human pathogens and lab escapes. To properly appreciate the significance of the geographic coincidence between the proximity of the web and the start of the outbreak, one needs to know that a pandemic coronavirus could, in principle, have emerged virtually anywhere in the world. The first SARS outbreak in 2002 began in Guangdong, China, but the MERS coronavirus, which is short for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, emerged in 2012 in the Middle East. Why then? with SARS-CoV-2, which for the rest of the talk, I will just call SARS-2, emerge in Wuhan. Right off the bat, as it were, the chances of the pandemic epicenter being within commuting distance of the Wuhan Institute of Virology made it hundreds, if not thousands to one, that the wave played a crucial role. But there is also another less noticed coincidence too, which we call the phylogenetic coincidence. The current pandemic is not just any coronavirus. SARS-CoV-2 belongs to a narrow viral species called the SARS-related bat coronaviruses. The research at the WIF specially targeted these SARS-related coronaviruses. So whereas many ty different types of coronaviruses infect people and could, so far as we know, have spilled over and caused the pandemic, the type of virus that did cause it is a very narrow type that the WIF has made a specialty of studying. This makes the origin of this pandemic not one coincidence, but two. So let me demonstrate this point in more detail because it is so important. This slide shows all the 28 species comprising the two groups of coronaviruses that infect humans the alpha coronaviruses and the, the pink ones, and the beta coronaviruses, the lower group. To this diagram, I've added a black arrow and a bracket to indicate just the species called the SARS-related coronaviruses. As I mentioned, 
In principle, a virus from any one of these 28 coronavirus species or an undiscovered species could have spilled over from their reservoir host and caused a pandemic in humans. For example, the last pandemic coronavirus was MERS in 2012 and is shown on this phylogenetic diagram with a green arrow. And the green arrow arrows in this slide show some of the other coronaviruses that in the past spilled over into humans. These green arrows make the point that a pandemic coronavirus could have emerged from any location on this phylogenetic tree. Yet where did the current pandemic virus emerge? It emerged at the exact place on the tree that the WIF has selected for special collection and study. The reason being that they wanted to better understand the emergence of the first SARS, SARS-1. And to finish this point, this slide exemplifies the deep focus on SARS-like coronaviruses, or that deep focus on SARS-like coronavirus. It shows how many titles of papers published since 2005 by Zheng Li Shi at the WIF contain the phrases SARS-like coronaviruses or SARS-related coronaviruses. The conclusion I want to draw here is simply that this phylogenetic co coincidence should be one of the principal facts in considering a possible lab origin. To assess those facts properly, it is necessary to spend a little time on the basics. The SARS-2 virus came ultimately from bats. This fact is not disputed. But the mysteries begin with the next question. How did a SARS-2-like virus successfully transmit from bats in nature to the human population? As this slide shows, there are three general categories of explanation. Theory one, the first and simplest theory, represented by the arrow on the left is that a person who was bit the, is that a person was bitten by a bat or maybe cooked a bat or ate a bat or was exposed to bat guano from which they acquired an infection that they then passed on the second theory is that an intermediate species was part of the chain of events farmed or trafficked animals acquired a bat coronavirus and humans picked it up from them. The third theory on the right is that the spillover involved a laboratory, a lab that was either collecting coronaviruses from the wild, or maybe was genetically manipulating one, and it escaped. Crudely speaking, these are the three broad alternatives. The initial leading explanation of the virus origin focused on the middle pathway from the slide above. That the pandemic originated from the Huanan, from the Huanan wildlife market in Wuhan. This idea at first seemed plausible, since both the first SARS-1 epidemic of 2002 and the MERS epidemic in 2012 reached humans by an intermediate host animal either wild or domesticated. In the case of SARS-1, it was probably an outbreak in civets, which are farmed and trafficked animals in China, that eventually spread to people. In the case of MERS in 2012, there was an outbreak in dromedaries, 
and this spread to humans. The same scenario of a virus spreading from bats to humans by intermediate species is a recurring one. In the West African Ebola outbreak of 1995, the virus killed many forest mammals and then made its way to humans. But a role for the Huanan market has now been ruled out, largely because many of the earliest victims had no connection, connections with it. In any event, unless that market sells bats, which the Huanan market did not, a market origin of any kind also assumes the existence of an intermediate animal host that was being sold there. What animal might, might that have been in this case? Early in the pandemic, pangolins were proposed as the most likely intermediate host for SARS-2. Pangolins are a very promising species for vectoring an outbreak in the sense that they are very highly trafficked species in Asia where they're valued for their medicinal properties. If pangolins harbor coronaviruses and sometimes catch them from bats, they could be a source of the outbreak. Additionally, as you may know, the SARS-2 virus enters human cells when its spike protein binds to a cell surface protein called ACE2. It so happens that the ACE2 protein in pangolins is similar in structure to the human one. This observation also encouraged researchers to look in pangolins for coronaviruses. However, since the pangolin theory was first mooted early in the pandemic, a substantial survey of wild-caught pangolins failed to detect any coronaviruses in them. Even more important, although there are four papers reporting coronaviruses in smuggled pangolins, Virologist Alina Chan and her colleagues have shown through deep analysis of the underlying sequence reads that all four of these published papers are ultimately reporting the same virus from the same pangolin sample. These published viral sequences are therefore not independent. There was just one infected pangolin and the likely explanation for its virus is that the pangolin caught it from its captors. In other words, given that the Huanan animal market is no longer considered to be the source of the outbreak, the highly cited pangolin zoonotic origin theory, which is still often mentioned in the media, is supported only by this one observation of a coronavirus in a pangolin. Even research papers still cite the pangolin theory, however. But there are other zoonotic theories that have been mooted though none of them is widely accepted, and so I'm not going to spend excessive time on that. One researcher's group has suggested that pet or stray dogs might have been the vector, while the French researcher Roger Frutos and his colleagues have suggested that the SARS-2 outbreak in which humans, in humans was part of a generalized infections of, infection of numerous mammal species by highly nonspecific coronavirus. The main problem with this theory, though, is that such a virus ought to be easily found. Other wilder possibilities revolve around ideas that the virus broke out much earlier than commonly supposed, and perhaps not in Wuhan. The earliest documented case of SARS-2 in China dates from November, 20, November 17, 2017. 
2019 in Wuhan. But samples from Milan and Barcelona predate November. So those are human samples. Unfortunately, these European samples were never sequenced to confirm the presence of the virus. Likewise, the US CDC's recent findings that the US had cases much earlier than thought from October 2019 are also not fully verified. In this case, the experimental problem is that the detections are close to the rate of false positives for the method they use. The Chinese government has also recently tried to pin the blame on food imports from India. If true, any of these possibilities would imply a very different origin for the virus than any suggested so far. But summarizing all this, at this moment, there is no concrete or defensible zoonotic origin theory. Nevertheless, it is all but certain that the current pandemic virus came ultimately from bats. There are many reasons for thinking this, but one of the most important is that the nearest known relative of SARS-2 is a virus obtained from horseshoe bats. It is called RATG13. As the closest related virus to SARS-2 by a considerable margin, RATG13 has to figure somewhere in any understanding of the origin of SARS-2. Regardless of whether one favors a zoonotic origin or a lab escape. So let us examine RATG13 more closely. So this slide is composed of two diagrams. The upper diagram B shows the arrangement of the linear genome SARS-2, which is read from left to right, beginning with ORF1A and ending in gene N. Like all coronaviruses, the genome is approximately 30,000 nucleotides in length. Slightly to the right of the, excuse me, slightly to the right of the middle of the genome is the spike protein in pink. I have indicated it with the red arrow. This spike is the protein on the surface of the virus that binds to the ACE2 receptor. Now look at the lower diagram, labeled C. It is known as a similarity plot. It shows the relatedness of various other coronaviruses to SARS-2. Each individual virus is represented by its own colored line. By looking at the vertical axis on the left, you can see that the higher the virus is on the plot, the closer related it is to SARS-2. SARS-2 is not no normally shown on such plots since it is 100% related to itself. To help, I have nevertheless added it as a horizontal black line across the top at 100% identity. Almost all the most closely related viruses to SARS-2 known in January 2020 are shown on this plot. RATG13 is the blue line indicated by the big blue arrow that I added. The points to take home from this slide are, number one, that RATG13 is the highest line and therefore the most closely related virus to SARS-2. Its overall similarity to SARS-2 is 
But second, RATGT13 is more similar than any other virus, not just on average, but over its whole length. This means that SARS-2 appears to have evolved from RATG13 without requiring any recombination, at least with these other relatives. What else do we know about RATG13? We know that it was isolated from a horseshoe bat species, Rhinolophus affinis, hence, hence the RA in its name. Second, it was found in a mine in Yunnan province, China in 2013. Its discoverer was the web's leading coronavirus researcher, Zheng Li Shi. Zheng Li Shi took it back to the web in Wuhan. But we also know that RATG13 is not all that similar to SARS-2. There are almost 1,200 nucleotide changes between the two, which is maybe 50 years of ordinary evolutionary change. What that means is that a simple lab accident with RATG13 was not the cause of the pandemic. This slide shows where RATG13 was brought to. The WIV in Wuhan has BSL2 and BSL3 labs and a more or less brand new BSL4 site. The BSL-4 is the highest level of biosecurity, and this is China's first ever BSL-4 lab. We also know that both in China and elsewhere, labs where dangerous pathogens are kept and studied have a poor record when it comes to lab escapes. These escapes have been summarized in two articles on our Independent Science News website. These articles provide a gateway into the fascinating and morbid history of supposedly biosecure laboratories. The shortened history is that lab escapes of human coronaviruses has happened, have happened at least six times since 2000, resulting in at least 100 infections and one fatality. And if we consider lab escapes of highly dangerous pathogens and not just viruses more generally, Various independent investigations have shown that these are quite routine in high security labs. Indeed, some of these escapes have led to major disease outbreaks. The most infamous accidental release occurred when the US CDC inadvertently mailed live anthrax to hundreds of labs around the world. But the most relevant of these escapes is the case of H1 N1 flu, excuse me. The H1N1 strain of flu initially died out in the 1950s as the global population had become immune to it. But an identical strain mysteriously reappeared in 1977. The outbreak originated from Siberia near the Russia-China border and spread worldwide. When I was at a boarding school in the late 1970s, we were sent home due to a flu outbreak. That outbreak was H1N1, which virologists are now all but certain escaped from a lab that was probably making a vaccine. Escaped H1N1 never became a full-blown pandemic, only because most people over 20 were immune to it due to previous exposure. The lesson here 
is that highly contagious viruses do escape from lab, just as attenuated live vaccines have caused outbreaks by mutating to more virulent forms. Given the documented possibility of lab escapes, how likely is it in this case that SARS-2 came from the whip? The first argument, which I've already touched on, is proximity. As soon as it was known that Wuhan was the epicenter, every knowledgeable person seems to have immediately considered the possibility of a lab escape there. Even Zengli Shi told Scientific American magazine she didn't sleep until she had checked their samples. Surely though, if she thought it was a possibility, then presumably it was. In addition to this, Wuhan is not the place in China where a novel coronavirus from bats was ever expected to break out. Much more likely would be to the south or the west of Wuhan, where it is wilder and more tropical, like Guangdong, where SARS-1 began. As I suggested earlier, a coronavirus could, epidemic could break out anywhere in the world. So why would one emerge in Wuhan, a city with a population of 11 million people and where bats infected with coronaviruses were rare or non-existent? We know, for example, that web researchers had to travel to distant provinces to obtain bat coronaviruses. We also know that they used blood samples of inhabitants of Wuhan as their negative controls in serological studies looking for exposure to bat coronaviruses. Except for the presence of the whip, no, re no reason has yet been found to expect a coronavirus pandemic to start in Wuhan. Secondly, research at the whip comprised coronavirus collection from bats all over China. At the whip, these samples were genetically sequenced and prioritized. Using selected samples, WIV researchers cult cultured wild SARS-related coronaviruses and created novel chimeric coronaviruses. The Xi lab also fused coronaviruses with other viruses like HIV. Some of you may recall the early concerns of Nobel Prize winning virologist Luc Montagnier. On French TV, he claimed the virus had elements of HIV in it. He later wrote a paper on this. I don't agree with his analysis. But Zeng Li Shi's lab had published a paper describing fusions between HIV and her coronaviruses. Montagnier's was thus not a purely fanciful allegation. There is no time to, here to go into the details of molecular research on coronaviruses published by Zeng Li Shi's group at the WIP. But their research was groundbreaking and extensive. She collaborated with high-profile labs around the world, published in top journals, and participated in the kinds of experiments that some researchers have critiqued as highly risky. And most importantly, as I mentioned earlier, much of this research specifically targeted the one narrow set of coronaviruses that SARS-2 comes from, the SARS-related coronaviruses. But it is also important to understand that the simple collection of viruses from the wild is hazardous. Richard E. Bright of Rutgers University called virus hunting, quote, like looking for a gas leak with a lighted match, end quote. 
So it's important to know that the Xi group had accumulated in their collection thousands of novel coronaviruses, one of which, RATG13, was the closest known relative of SARS-2. Recall also that in slide eight, the very first theory of the origin of SARS-2 that I proposed was direct infection from contact with bats. Maybe the simple answer is that a WIV researcher on a collecting trip was bitten by a bat. The third pertinent issue is that credible concerns have been raised in various quarters about the new BSL-4 lab at the WIV and lab biosecurity in China generally. These concerns arise from diverse Chinese internal sources and, and as well the US State Department. The fourth significant argument pointing at a lab escape comes under the heading of pre-adaptation. The SARS-2 coronavirus, dating from its initial discovery, proved itself highly adapted to humans. This is a very striking observation, which shows itself in two ways. Firstly, the virus is extraordinarily infectious to humans when compared either with other coronaviruses or with other airborne viruses, such as regular flu. Secondly, a virus that just recently jumped from a bat or an intermediate species, like a pangolin, will not be perfectly adapted to humans. If we compare this pandemic virus with the first SARS, SARS-1, uh, SARS-1 underwent a series of mutations in people that could be tracked by researchers before the virus reached its more or less final form. In contrast, SARS-2 appeared as a ready-formed pandemic virus, as if pre-adapted to people. No transitional mutations were observed early in this pandemic. As of today, we are still waiting to see if the vi virus has evolved even one single improvement to its fitness since the pandemic began. Some of you may have heard media accounts of mutant D614G and now the new English B117 variant. But as of this writing, the jury is still out on whether these changes truly confer advantages to the virus. Even if these mutations do turn out to be advantageous for the virus, they do not significantly change our understanding of the early stages of the pandemic. To be clear, the issue of pre-adaptation is not just about the affinity of the spike protein. Some people have focused on the remarkably high affinity of the SARS-2 spike for the human ACE2 receptor. But I want to emphasize that pre-adaptation applies to every component of the virus. Each part of it needs to be optimized to human cells and human bodies and the human immune system. And pretty much all the evidence shows that seemingly it was. This pre-adapted nature of the virus that broke out therefore represents a major challenge for any natural origin theory but it is a challenge that can be solved by some lab origin theories. So in the next talk, I want to explore these lab origin theories more closely. In particular, I will present the Mojang minus passage theory.
This theory offers a plausible route by which bat virus RATG13 or a very close relative of it from a mine in Yunnan province morphed into the human adapted pandemic virus SARS-2. This theory uniquely provides a simple explanation for all the surprising features of the pandemic virus. It explains why the virus was pre-adapted to humans. It explains why unlike most coronaviruses, SARS-2 is unusually dangerous to the lungs and non-respiratory tissues by normal coronavirus standards. And not least, it explains why the pandemic began in Wuhan. So I'm finishing with a slide of further reading and some acknowledgements. Obviously, I encourage people to explore these issues more deeply, but I would like to emphasize that this talk leans heavily on others. Firstly, my collaborator and colleague, Alison Wilson, who is the equal contributor to this work. But equally, a huge amount of hard work of hard but extraordinarily valuable investigative work on the origins has been done by many people, often anonymous from all over the world. These individuals have searched and sorted, probed and translated masses of documents, databases, websites, and videos. And from these efforts is slowly emerging a much clearer picture of the beginnings of the pandemic than I ever would have thought possible. So, Thank you, everyone. And uh, maybe I'll hand over to Wayne and have a drink of water and, and open up for questions. So. Are you there, Wayne? Sorry, I muted myself there. Um, that was awesome. And um, you do have the first question here. This is a good one. And this is more for me than for you, Jonathan. Um, Benjamin asks, how can we share this information? Is this available as a transcript or a video recording? So answers to that for you. By about early next week, but not long, our team, Mark leading it up, who's on the webinar here, will have made the copy of the replay of this. It will be on the EAT website, which by, um, by Registering for this webinar, you are, are now a member of the EAT uh, community, and you can go to the website and you can view it there. Um, so that's, that's one thing you can do. Um, we will, you know what, we don't usually do it, but we will actually do a transcript, um, and we may not edit it completely. It takes a lot of work, but it'll be, it'll be good because we only had one speaker. Sometimes when we have like 10 speakers, the, the, um, the transcripts aren't as good, but, but our, our, our platform here, GoToWebinar, allows us to do a um, recording. You really can't just share it broadly with others, folks. That's uh, why we do it here. Um, that we'd be breaking you know, our, our copyright rules to just share it broadly, but you absolutely could tell others about the EAT community and they can join and then this would be made available. When Jonathan's done with all three presentations, he actually will also get copies 
of all of the material that, that we recorded, and he has the ability to use it for his own benefit. That's one of the one of the great benefits we give to speakers. And if you wanted to reach out to him separately um, and see if he wanted to somehow make it more available to you, he could certainly do that. But at this point, to share it, you would just need to tell someone, hey, join the Eat community, it's free, and then they could, they could view it. And then, yes, there will be a video recording that is what you could share and also a transcript. So any other questions? Guys, come on, come up with something. We have a little more time here. I have one right off the bat, Jonathan. Um, is what's the current attitude about these variants? And are you going to talk more about them in the next one or both of the next two section, sessions as to are their origins completely different? Are they just mutations? And can we expect a lot more mutations in the near future if they are mutations? Yeah, I mean, as the virus passes through people, it picks up mutations, right? And that means that by this point in the pandemic, there's, I don't even know how many different variants. I mean, there's been a lot of sequencing being done, but, but you know, each individual virus that you, that, that you would sequence today will be significantly different from the ones that started out in Wuhan. So, okay. so but most of these mutants are basically they're just random changes in the virus. So far as we understand, and this is you know a kind of principle of genetics and the principle of virology that most of these mutations simply are changes with no biological consequences. They enable you to sequence the virus and track it. Uh, and so they're useful to look at and interesting to look at, but very few of them have biological consequences. But nevertheless, you know, people expect that mutations will build up in the population of the virus that are advantageous to it. And they may just be advantageous to it in a, you know, this makes for a more infectious virus, or this makes for a more, um, uh, you know, higher replicating virus, or has some, you know, you know, advantage, you know, it makes it better able to defend against the immune system or something like that. But there's a kind of a third category of mutations, which are that, in the, as happened with the H1N1 flu, uh, the simple fact of resistance building up in the human population to, you know, existing versions of the virus means that new variants of the virus will emerge simply because they're not recognized by the immune system so efficiently. And so what okay. happens, you know, with virus populations is they mutate and migrate evolutionarily slowly to basically, tra you know, tracking people's immunity. But these, you know, as I said, the, you know, it's such a striking finding of all this uh, sequencing that we still don't really have conclusive evidence that any mutation has arisen that really benefits the virus. And, yeah. and even the ones that have, you know, the D614G is kind of interesting because what it the, the advantage that that mutation 
appears to have, and I, I, it's, this is very, it's kind of cutting edge research, and it's, it takes a lot of verification of this kind of research, but it seems like if it does anything, it transmits between people better, right? That is the advantage that it has, and we don't know why that is. Like maybe it builds up in the throat more, more than normal viruses, so it's more easily expelled and so forth, and more easily gives, uh, you know, is more infectious for that kind of reason. That's kind of like a whole body reason, or maybe it's because the spike is different and has a slightly higher affinity for the human receptor, for example. That's another explanation that's been offered. But um, awesome. but we, it's well, basically a transmission mutant, if it's anything. Awesome. So two more questions here. And you guys, if you've got a couple more, go ahead and ask them. I actually think one of these is probably one you are going to want to defer and answer it after your next two presentations. But um, let me ask that one first. Um, Dan asks, is if it was man-made, what could be gained by founding, finding out if it was? You're going to talk a lot more about that and the other two. Do you think that's one you'd probably rather answer later, or do you want to answer that now? No, I'm, I'm happy to, to answer that one. You know, I mean, I'm not going to explore the possibility that it was man-made as a weapon. Right? I, I don't know if Dan is inferring that. And, you know, it's a reasonable question to ask, right? Because people have altered uh, viruses to try to make them more infectious, to make bioweapons. But uh, I'm not going to go into that too much. But, but what, uh, you know, if, if you find out that it's man-made and basically escaped and it was part of making a vaccine or it was part of making a... Um, you know, a treatment or it was, uh, you know, basically a, a lab accident that was totally not intended to be released and there was no uh, bad intent behind it. What you can learn from that is that the kind of experiments that we're doing in labs and the public is funding are actually unwise experiments to be doing, right? So, so there's a whole kind of discussion in the virology and pathogen communities about what are the best experiments to make vaccines, to design treatments, to test um, medical hypotheses, and what are the safest experiments to do, to do all those things. If we knew what experiment would, had led to the release of, of a virus, then we would have much better evidence that, that, that such a virus is actually such an experiment is basically an unwise one to do, right? So we could, right. you know, there are many people who think that simply the experiments that are being done today in virology labs are simply unnecessarily dangerous. That we could learn just as useful things, maybe different things, maybe even the exact same things, but with less dangerous experiments. So there's a whole discussion going around that. That so, that in, in my opinion, it would make a huge difference. To the kind of research that people did in virology labs. That's a very helpful answer. Um, this next one may be a little more either difficult or simple to ask. So Heather asks, when do people think the first person got COVID-19 in the form that appeared in March? Mm -hmm. So that appeared in Mar oh in in the U.S. in March. Yes, yeah. it appeared in the U.S. And when did they think was the first 
the, the, the you know the first person that would have gotten yeah, it out. I mean, I mean by the time by the time that the virus appeared in the U.S., it seems like you know it already existed. It was basically sampling from different variants that were that were found in China at that time. So the D614G mutation, for example, was already in China before that time. So, and what happened with that mutation is that a whole bunch, there was basically a huge eruption of the pandemic in Seattle. And in Seattle, there was uh, that D614G mutation was very common. So because there was an eruption, basically that form of the virus basically became overabundant, you know, uh, compared with all the other copies of, of viruses in the country at the time. So basically the, the new mutation tracked the, an out, basically a kind of the sub outbreak, if you like. And so, so, but what happened, you know, the very first infection that we know about was, we think, November 17th, 2019. But we also know from, you know, you can use all these mutations to track in China what the origin of the virus was. For example, you know, we can pretty much rule out the idea that the virus was circulating for months or years in, you know, unnoticed in the population because uh, this, the, the number of mutants that were present when they sampled the Huanan market uh, back in January of last year, it is now, 12 months ago, was very small, right? What that tells you is that the virus hadn't been around for very long because, like I said, you can track the, the, the life, you know, the life of the epidemic through the mutations that are, that are found in the population. Okay. Last question, Michael, great. You've got a great one here, so I'm gonna raise this one for, um, for Jonathan, and this will be the last one today. Again, we're gonna do two more weeks of this, everybody, so I'm sure if you have questions, you can come back or you can watch replays. If you watch a replay and you put a question in, we will absolutely be able to add Michael, uh, Jonathan, that also. So here's a little bit long. Jonathan can, and this, this fellow clearly has a little bit of knowledge here. Jonathan, can, can, can you confirm for me, please, why not one single institution or scientist has yet to provide the evidence that a novel coronavirus has passed all the Koch postulates and secondly, the PCR test created by Carrie Mullis should not be used as a diagnostic tool. So why are governments using as such? I guess there's two questions there. First one is um, um, why has not a single institution or scientist um, provided evidence that the novel coronavirus has passed all of Koch's postulates? So, you know, Koch's postulates, uh, I would say the, the similar answer to this is Koch's postulates are kind of an ideal. Right, they're not something that is necessarily that easy to do. And there's many reasons why it's not that easy to do. But in the case of humans, it requires that you deliberately infect someone with an extract of the virus in order to prove that they get COVID, right? That they get the disease and that they become infected with the virus. So basically what what Coke, you know, wanted people to do, you know, was basically for experimental animals and for experimental organisms to do that. So there's a there's a kind of ethical obstacle 
to doing that is that you don't want to give you know your experimental subjects the virus but i would say that you know there is no doubt that the virus is spreading in the population and that it is causing people to become sick so like you know when you've seen enough people uh coming down with a disease and when you've seen enough people with a virus that you can you know you can show that they are sick you can show that they contain the virus you can show that they caught it from someone else who had the virus and so on and so forth you have the logical pieces in place to demonstrate that really this is the infectious agent that is causing the disease and it can right. sometimes be really difficult you know, like in the case of HIV, people raise the same question, right? You know, how do you know if HIV causes AIDS? And the problem with HIV was, you know, that it did, you know, it was before the days of PCR tests and what have you, it was difficult to to work out what what which people had the virus. The virus would come and go. It would hide in your genome. It would adopt, you know, DNA forms and RNA forms. It's really difficult to actually correlate people's infections. And the second, you know, another, another problem with HIV was that it took five or 10 years or more for people to die of it, right? Or even develop symptoms sometimes. So demonstrating Cox postulates can be a really hard thing to do. And I don't think it's, it's an argument against the scientific profession or the medical profession that they haven't fulfilled those those postulates. I think it's it's you know there are other ways of establishing these facts. And then the last question I'm was about the PCR test. Do you want me to answer that, Wayne? Yeah, I was going to rephrase it. I think Kerry's giving his opinion here, which is great. He's, he is saying, you know, why are we using the PCR test created by Kerry Mollis uh, because it shouldn't be a diagnostic tool. Is that, I think that's what he was asking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a little, it's, you know, there is no perfect test for, for the virus, right? You know, sometimes what, what, you know, what's going on in a person is they're sick and the virus is gone. Sometimes they have an infection that is really bad, but they're not, you know, the, the amount of, uh, for example, proteins in the person or virus in the person it's not very high, uh, or it's in the wrong places where you do your test. So we have antibody tests, you know, we have PCR tests, we have different kinds of tests that, you know, that represent basically different ways of detecting the virus and are useful under different circumstances. And there are problems with PCR tests, right? They can, they're subject to contamination, they require the presence of RNA or DNA, they're not tests for proteins, for example. Uh, so, so we, if you clear the virus, or, or you have still have some virus in you, but you don't, you're not sick anymore. You can PCR test deliver false positives and false negatives, and simply give false positives and false negatives for the reasons that all biological experiments are imperfect. So, so you know, I would push back a little bit on saying you shouldn't use a PCR test uh, to see whether people are sick or not. They're just a tool that people use. And, you know, there are good and bad PCR tests. There are good and bad, you know, the controls that people use in their experiments should be good enough to see whether to exclude most of the problems that I've heard people talking about 
to do with false positives and false negatives. You can add, you know, blanks and and uh, and blinded samples to the test, right? This is what should be done, right? Blinded and and uh, blinded samples and blinded testers, so they don't know who's positive and who's negative, and so on and so forth. So these these kinds of experiments should be incorporated into the methodologies that people use. And I, you know, I don't know enough about the testing scene to know whether these are done or not. But they really, they should be done, you know, on, as much as possible. You know, there's an there's a saying in in biology, an experiment is only as good as its controls, right? You have to have good controls in experiment, and people often miss out that step, and that's a a painful mistake. Well, I think we'll we'll end with that. I'm going to tell you Michael's comment that he made after you, you know, before you even started to answer, and then we'll end with that. I want to, before we do that, thank you so much, Jonathan. Look forward to next week. We had a you know, very attentive audience, and most of them are still here even after we're doing ten minutes late, you know, after, beyond time, and questions getting answered. Here was Michael's comment even before you started to answer. We'll kind of end with it. I have to disagree because if you don't know what you're testing for, you cannot use the PCR test because there's no gold standard, as well as the fact that correlation does not mean causation. So that's a, you know interesting perspective. Maybe maybe let's wait and maybe comment on that next week or the following week. Um, Michael, thank you. You're giving this a lot of thought. You obviously are a little bit of an expert in uh, some of this virology, a little bit yourself too. So appreciate that and. Um, Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Jonathan, Mark. Thank you for your work, as you always do. Thank you, Areeb. And have a great weekend, Jonathan, and our and audience. And we'll, we'll see everybody. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.